I'd had a rubber chicken forever. <laughs> I'm a professional speaker. I'm also a uh, best-selling author. It's Steve McDermott! <laughs> you must feel that nothing is going your way and that you're a total failure. No? Well, listen up, but because it can be arranged, Steve McDermott's new book, How to Be a Complete and Utter Failure in Life, Business and Everything, will have you heading for underachievement. The idea is although unique self-unimprovement guides might convince you to take some comfort in your disasters, it might just also inspire you to be a success. Kachina Sabre Street. Remember that? <laughs> Kachina were... I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some hints and tips for people that hate public speaking, which is 99% of the population. Well, first of all, you've got to move from hating it to loving it. They want you nervous and anxious. If you're not in the right state, it's game over, right? On the workshop, one of the questions we ask people early on, you remember this, Steve, is... Hi, I'm Steve. I am the Digital Director at Spectrum Group. Our mission in life is to unlock the potential of your people. And we do that by three things, hardware, software, and expertise. So, as usual, if you like what we're doing, please like, subscribe, share. And with all that said, welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Steve McDermott. Hello. Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you again after many years. Yes. Um, so, do you want to introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm Steve McDermott, I'm a professional speaker, I'm also a uh, best-selling author, and when I'm not doing that, I run a business called The Confident Club that teaches people to be masters of communication. Excellent. And I've been fortunate enough to go on Confident Club, which is a fan fantastic course, and it, it talks a lot about speaking and getting up in front of people, um, and I guess it'd be good to get your input into... Give us some hints and tips for people that hate public speaking, which is 99% of the population. Well, first of all, you've got to move from hating it to loving it. Yeah. Right. And so how do you do that? And I think there's loads of fundamentals. And I think the different, our different approaches, most people talk about skills and we talk about beliefs. So whether it's my book or anything, you know, the biggest shift I've ever had in my life and helping other people is when you shift your mindset or your beliefs. People always talk about skills, but skills have to sit on top, top of beliefs. So my first tip would be, what do you currently believe about this thing called presenting? So what do you currently believe about this thing called presenting, John? Can I avoid it at all costs? Yeah. Um, that, that would be my, my, my take on it. Um, it's just sheer fear of getting up and talking to people and thinking that I'm being judged left, right and centre. And, and then suddenly that... Fear kicks in and then there's no belief because suddenly I'm looking and I'm thinking, wow, where do I start? My son's more confident at presenting mm. than I, which is which, which is interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, my five-year-old was, I went to see his nativity last week and he's quite happy standing on stage and talking to people. Wow. But at some point during that journey, people lose some of that. No, I think what you do is you learn to, you learn to be scared of it. So nobody came out of the womb scared of speaking in public, right? You mm -hmm. learned to do it. And we, just before we started recording, yeah, yeah. you were saying, Neil, that um, you can remember the, yeah, yeah. the exact, exact yeah. time because you're dyslexic at yeah, school yeah. when I think they got you to read something in you class. Just literally, you stand up and read that sentence and I stood up and, I, and I, because I stumbled over a couple of words and I was still pointing it out and sounded it out at the age of like 11. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got ridiculed straight away. Yeah. About three weeks later, I was in special class. But I think the English teacher very quickly realised that, yeah, I was dyslexic. But at the same time, it was... 
it was the, the yeah the fear. I'm not necessarily fear. It was just the ridicule, the embarrassment, yeah, and, yeah. and that. Yeah, and you saw in a powerful voice, you had to go. If it's all to do with me, about we're doing that again in a race. So yeah. on the workshop, time and time again. I mean, thank the Lordy Lord that people ask out of it. We wouldn't have built a business on it, right? <laughs> really, yeah. But the point is, you learn to do it. Yeah. So the exciting thing is, you can unlearn to do it, and that's what we can talk about. How do you unlearn to do it? And what you need to do is first of all question your beliefs, right? So I'm scared. Why well, I'm scared? What will people think? So you need to destroy that belief. So if you've got kids, anybody listening to this, if you've got kids, uh, and especially when they become teenagers, my three are grown up, but most teenagers go, what will other people think? How embarrassing, right? And so I think the first thing to change that belief is to say, you know, people aren't judging you because they're not thinking about you. Nobody's ever thinking about you. What do most people spend most of the time thinking about? Themselves. Themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So that'd be another way of thinking about the belief, right? Yeah. Right. The other thing is, I think if I was talking about, if I was to pull out, we, we install or we help people install over the two days. This is why I can give you a lot of tips now. But anybody listening to this, as we say in Yorkshire, nope's going to change because it's just, th <laughs> it's just theory. You, you might go, but yeah, you ain't going to change your beliefs just because I tell you to do. You need to have an experience because, so, yeah. as you just said, your, that Good belief important. was based on an intense emotional experience, wasn't it? Yes. So we give people an intense emotional experience over two days where it's safe. You know, we push them outside the comfort zone. So you'll know this, Steve, because you came mm. at workshop. We do we have a lot of surprises, don't we? You do. Keep them to yourself. <laughs> and people go, oh, my goodness, I can't cope with that. And they do. And they form a new belief about what what's possible, right? The other thing I would say anybody listening to this, people think they need to be fixed. So people go, so they go, well, I need a better memory or I need to, I need to have, I haven't got a good enough education or, you know, I'm from north of England and I've got a funny voice and I hate the sound of my voice, right? And I hate my accent or I'm too posh, I've had that. I'm French, you know, I'm, whatever. I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm black, I'm Chinese. It doesn't matter. Got all these reasons, right? What I would say to people, anybody listening to this is, anybody listening to this, don't need fixing, they've got all the resources they could ever need right now inside themselves. You don't need all extra. You just need to have that belief you can bring it out. And so there's loads of ways of doing that. So you start with the beliefs, then you put the skills on top. And the first belief, I think, if we haven't got time to cover them all, yeah. but the one I give you as a gift is that there's no such thing as failure. Explain that to me then. Well, I mean, it's a big one, isn't it? So pe what, what happens is people go, right, I'm going to do this thing for the first time, mm. this presentation, anything. I'm not just talking about presentations now. I'm talking about life in general, right? Whatever it is. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going for this job interview. I'm giving this presentation. It doesn't quite work out because it's the first time you've ever done it, right? So the chances it's going to, you're going to pull it off first time, might do, but might mm. not. And then most people go, when they step outside the comfort zone, they beat themselves and go, oh my God. I failed. Why do I? I'm a bad person. Boom, boom, boom. Right, and they and they get emotional and they don't get the learning. Mm. What I mean is, what people do have the belief there's no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. They go, what is? What did I just learn? Mm. And the best way I can describe that: stuff happens, doesn't it, in life all the time. Stuff's putting it politely. There's another word that begins with S, right? <laughs> and the best metaphor I can give you, I don't know if we've got any uh, Trekkie fans listening. So Star Trek. So when I think I'm, this is how old I am. When I think of Star Trek, I think about the original TV series with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, right? Where at the beginning of an episode, typically, like first program I ever saw in colour. That's how old I am as well, right? <laughs> so um, the typical episode, the big Kirk, wouldn't they? Would always get emotional, and Spock was all right. I was like 
calm and logical, right? And they'd be beaming down to some mysterious planet. There'd be a new crew member in a red top one that you'd never seen before. <laughs> I'd be sat having my tea at home thinking, well, he's going to die in this episode, isn't he? <laughs> but if you remember, typically, they'd be on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise and getting attacked by the Klingons out there, right? And everybody's falling about and... and Kurt's getting all emotional, but not Spock. Spock is, Spock is in what I would call the Spock state. Do you remember the Spock state? Yes. So he stood tall, mm. he's symmetrical, and he'd always use this word. He wouldn't use the word failure, he'd just go, how fascinating. Mm. Right? So we train people, and I've trained myself, when the stuff happens, instead of getting emotional, you just go, how fascinating. It's just a result. And you talk about learning from kids as well, yeah. in terms of them learning to walk and falling over yeah, yeah. and then yeah, sofa yeah. surfing. And yeah, yeah. They don't, they don't see that as failure. Yeah, so if you think about it, how most adults behave is they have one or two goes at something and they go, that didn't work, I'm not going to do that again. Right? Mm. Whereas if we did that with kids when they're learning to walk, you go, you've had three goes at this learning to walk, you, you keep falling over, you need to crawl around on your ass for the rest of yeah, your life. I'm not right? Working, I'm just gonna right. Yeah. And it's the same principle, it's the yeah. same metaphor. Um, so we don't like doing that so cut. Listen, anything worth doing well is worth doing badly at first, but people want to do it perfect. So the other belief that sits with there's no failure is you've got to give yourself permission to not be perfect. Where probably on this podcast, who knows where it'll go? I might trip over a word. I might forget what I was going to say. Who knows? Who cares? Quite right. right. Whereas most people go have to be perfect. And so what you're looking for when you say giving a presentation is people go, they either go, this is so important, I have to be word perfect. Have you seen people do that one? Mm. Where they write a script, and this is what happened during COVID, they write a script and they read it to you. Now, nobody wants that, do they? Nobody wants that. Yeah. Uh, because they go from this perfectly natural person, we're having a conversation, conversational, being a person, to being a presenter, mm. right? And nobody can do word perfect anyway unless you're an actor. So it's terrible. If uh, I remember, I've coached a couple of people who've been on Dragon's Den. You know Dragon's Den, mm, yeah, yeah. but not before they went on it. After they went on it, so I'm not taking any credit. <laughs> they got an investment, right? Um, <clears throat> and they said they deliberately set it up to make you as nervous as possible because it's it's better television, isn't it? Crash yeah. television. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they said they pick you up at like five o'clock in the morning. They drive you to the location, which is that warehouse in the middle of nowhere. They put you in a room with a chaperone. They take your phone off you and they say, right, you're going to be on at 10 o'clock in front of the dragons and then at 10 o'clock and then they leave you to, to stew yeah yeah because they want you in a, yeah, yeah. they want you in a lousy state so the key thing about presenting is you've got to be in the right state to perform mm. so that is the number one thing it starts with being in the right state if you've got if you're not in the right state it's game over right so if you think about like nerves and all that and anxious, so they want you, they want you nervous and anxious. And most people on Dragon's Den, I remember episode one, I think, it was first series, right? Guy gets up and they have, they have that thing. And I've, I know Simon Woodruff, who's the founder of Your, Your Sushi, he was, on, mm. he was one of the first Dragons, yeah, and he was yeah, telling yeah. me, or Steve the Briefters, they said, whatever you do, stony face, give, give the presenters, give the contestants, whatever they're called, nothing. Mm. So you've got this really challenging audience and they're right back there as well. Like, it's ridiculous, like the other side of the room. <laughs> I remember episode one, this guy's setting up something and I don't know what he's selling and it kept falling over. And he's going for the word perfect to have a learn the script. So he gets up and he goes, um, <clears throat> Dragons, the reason I'm here today is that I've got a, um, I've got a, um, um, oh, can I just start again? And all the dragons are going, oh, Okay. Right, dragons. Um, the reason I'm here today, and sweat patches have started now. Right? Uh, the reason I'm here today is, and and it's like he's gone for a script. So you don't want to be there. Mm. 
Equally, some people I think you were saying was uh, if you think about wedding speech, you know, best men particularly. I know we have best women now and all the rest of it, right? But back in the day, best man, and they've gone for the totally wing it approach. Have you seen people going for the totally wing it approach? I have, yep. yeah. That don't work either. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, you don't want to be in the I'm going for the word perfect, and you don't want to be in the winging it. So what's the sweet spot? Are we familiar with TED Talks, fellas? Mm, right. Yeah. So that's maybe the gold standard TED Talks, right? Yeah. Do you know what the most viewed TED Talk of all time is? And I don't. It's by. I don't know. I highly recommend it. It's by Sir Ken Robinson, who sadly is no longer with us, uh, died during COVID, not of COVID. I had the pleasure, he was with the same agent as me, so I had the pleasure of being on stage with Sir Ken five or six times. Um, when he died, he's speaking for you. Not that money's any measure of success, but it's one. It, it was based in North America. For a 45-minute keynote, he was paid $45,000. So what I'm about to share with you now is worth listening to. <laughs> I said to Ken, what would be your top tip for giving a great presentation or speech? You know, you would, Jay, we were talking about wedding speech. And he said, I think it's like playing jazz. Interesting. I go out with a tune in mind, but it's important to go off on the twiddly bit now and again. Mm, like that. So great speakers go, I have a structure I can follow, but it allows me to be conversational. And one of the things that I learned was around uh, like a mind map yeah. and pictures instead of words. Yeah. So um, you said, what am I doing after this podcast? Yeah. Uh, when you work for yourself, it can be, I used to work in the corporate world, I used to work in advertising. So if you've seen Mad Men, we were like the documentary version of that, right? <laughs> Big social world, so Christmas party time. So when you work for yourself, so every year me and some speaker friends get together. So I'm meeting some amazing speakers at lunchtime. So I strafted some women for Christmas lunch, right? Um, and one of them's a guy called David Thomas, who was a world memory champion, uh, ex-firefighter from Halifax with two crappy GCSEs, right? Hmm. So how, how did he change his life around? Well, he got, he got a book called uh, How to Develop a Perfect Memory. And in that book, he discovered strategies by a guy called Dominic O'Brien. Highly recommend that book, Dominic O'Brien. I think it's called How to, well, I know it's called How to Develop a Perfect Memory Week by Week, right? Hmm. And in that book, Dave found strategies and ways of remembering stuff that have been around since the times of the Romans and the Greeks that professional speakers and politicians and stand-up comedians still use to this day. Why? Because of the work. Mm. And using a strategy in that, as a firefighter, if I'm going to try this, and, it's, and if Dave was here, tell the thing about memory is people go, again, limiting beliefs, people go, on the workshop, one of the questions we ask people they only remember this, Steve, is who here believes they've got perfect recall? Not one hand goes up apart from mine and my other coaches, right? Mm -hmm. and then we go, who believes? So anybody listening to this, ask yourself this question, because how do you know what your limiting beliefs are? Well, ask yourself some questions, right? Mm -hmm. Notice what tumbles out of your mouth. People can't wait to stand up for their limits. People are quite proud about the fact that they have a lousy memory, mm. aren't yeah. they? Right? Yeah, yeah. So we'll say to people, okay, who believes they've got above average memory? And a few people say that. Who believes they've got an average memory? A few, but most people go, who believes they've got a memory below average? And people go, oh. right? Who believes they've got the worst memory in the room? Somebody, you know, me, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're kind of quite proud of it. And then we teach them stuff we learned from Dave and from that book. And Dave, using a, a strategy in that book, now nobody's ever going to want to do this. I'm going to, he said, I'm going to go for something crazy. I'm going to go for the word record for memorising the number pi. So don't let me digits of pi, you know. Three. Three. Three yeah. point one yeah, four. Yeah. So you can get the book, well done. Is that it? <laughs> anyway, so if you don't know, it's an infinite number, right? And Dave will tell you, you can get the book of pi, which is pi to a million digits. Wow. And using the strategy that we teach on the workshop, right, he memorised pi to 22 
and a half thousand digits. Now, when he tells adults that, right, he, uh, they go, you sad, sad gits, you know. <laughs> why, oh, why would you want to do that? Yeah. And when he tells to kids about it, they go, how? Because mm. yeah. young kids, back to young kids, if you teach young kids memory stuff, they don't have the baggage we have. They go, okay. And then when you say to them, do it backwards, they go, all right. Now, rhetorical question, are we, any, are we ever going to need to remember 22,500 things for a presentation? No. Hopefully not. But we might want to remember 10. Mm. So people use it as an excuse. PowerPoint. Do you use PowerPoint? I, I, I do. I try yeah. to use it less. Yes. Yeah. According to research by Microsoft, who invented the damn thing, how many PowerPoint presentations do you think would be going to be given globally in the next 24 hours? Do you think it's more than 5 million? Neil? I think so, yeah. John, come on, 10 million? It can't be more than 10 million, it surely. Is. Got it, and it's probably out of date because this research is probably done two or three years ago. So from now, whatever time it is now, in the next 24 hours, globally, around the world, hmm. there will be given 30 million PowerPoint presentations. Wow. Wow, indeed. Rhetorical <laughs> question. I mean, those are going to be studying amazing. I'll tell you very few because I've sat through more because as a professional speaker, I normally get that slot after lunch, which is called the what? Graveyard yeah, um, I don't call it that, by the way, because why would I call it that? Right? Hi, guys. I just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation which we often get involved in, which is the processing of supplier invoices or accounts payable automation, as it's also known. Most businesses have invoices that they get sent from their suppliers. Essentially, what our solutions do is they read those invoices, they extract key information from them, like purchase order numbers, supplier codes or supplier names. We then use that information and match that up against digital records. So can we find a purchase order number? Can we find a good receive note for that product? If we can, then we can match it up, we can reconcile it, and we can automatically post that into your finance system. What makes us different is that we configure our solutions to be specific to your organization. So we're not an out the box, plug it in and see what you get. We actually understand more about your processes, your organization, your supplier base, and we configure the solution to meet those requirements. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch, let's have a chat. So I've sat through thousands of these things, right? And I've seen people on workshops. Um, very few, because I'm not knocking PowerPoint. If it's used well, and it's rarely used well, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant tool. But most people don't use PowerPoint. What most people use, do is they abuse PowerPoint. Mm. And the key way in which they abuse it is to remember what they are going to say and do, mm. right? Yeah. So you need to say, and all the, all the go, right, I need a load of notes. So it's like, the question's got to be, how do I ditch the notes? How do I ditch the PowerPoint? If I believe I've got a bad memory, we're well, never going to do. So you need to change your belief around your memory first, have some simple tools to remember some stuff, have a strong structure, and then you can play jazz. <laughs> I remember one of the things that you encouraged us to do was bring props along as well. Yes. So what, why is that? Well, so what's the alternative to, what's the alternative to, um, to slides so during covid i had three life goals uh, one was the third edition of the book which you've got there was meant to be coming out in all w h smith's travel outlets and airports i don't know if you noticed they were all closed <laughs> that eventually happened i was meant to be running the london marathon yeah that didn't happen so but they did say you can run it virtually do you know what that means john yeah, yeah. Virtually makes it sound like it's like a computer game, doesn't yeah, it? it right? does. No, it meant you could run it on your own because of COVID. Yeah. 
power of belief again. It's life's about beliefs. Biggest shift in you is if mm. you shift your beliefs. So if we take running a marathon because it's relevant to putting together a great presentation. So I've, I've, did anybody go running? Anybody run a marathon? I did through COVID. Yeah. 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 Have you, what's <coughs> farthest you run, John? Uh, uh, did you follow a training plan? No, I no. Did. We did. Um, uh, Lands End to John O'Groats. You ran? Oh, virtually. Oh, very good. Over um, a year. Yeah, yeah. Over, over, over a year. So yeah. uh, 20k was the longest one one off. So nothing like a marathon. So on the workshop, we, we follow a process. I think um, doing anything is a process. You can analyse a process, find a good process. And I think you can use the metaphor of running, right? So if anybody listens to ever follow the training plan for a marathon. So I've run four marathons now, right? I didn't start running till I was 62. Right. Um, so I've run four marathons the last four years, right? So I'm 66 in two weeks, right? Uh -huh. And I'm running a marathon next year as well for Rob Burrow for Morton Neuron oh, Disease. Because right? uh, I'm a massive Leeds Rhinos fan as well. And Rob Burrow's my daughter's favourite player of all time. But that's another story, right? Um, so, yeah, so I thought I'm going to run the London Marathon virtually. I was running on behalf of Sports Aid, so I had a massive reason why. If you want to have a change of beliefs around memory, for example, you're not going to do it unless you've got a big enough reason why. When Dave did that thing, 22,500 digits from Pi, he had to have a big enough, big enough reason why. Because I said to him, how long did it take you just to say it, Dave? You know, 22, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. You know, three point whatever, right? He said, oh, you mean the time I got it right? So what do you mean? He said, I got to like 19,000 and all, got one wrong, I had to start again. Oh, no. Wow. But he had a massive reason why. He knew if he pulled it off, something amazing would happen. And what happened was, ex-firefighter from Halifax, right, with two crappy GCSEs, because mm. he put off the record, he got invited on the Opera Winfrey show in America. Brilliant. And got his green card, got to speak all around North America, right? So back to the marathon and power of beliefs in everything, whether that's presenting anything else. I thought, right, well, got to run it virtually. First challenge was, well, well what route? Yeah. I'd only run one marathon before that, the Yorkshire Marathon. Mm. Starts in York, yeah, yeah. goes out into the countryside, but at least you got a bit of a crowd, right? Mm. So I thought, well, I could run the Yorkshire Marathon route again, couldn't I? But I'll have to remember the stress, right? The stress needle of going left or right. So I thought, no, what I will do is here in Leeds, and I only live 10 minutes away from it, there's an open outdoor running track at Temple Newsom. Yes. So I thought, I'll do it on the running track. Right, look at your face, Ooh, right? Around and round. So how, how far is a marathon? 26.2 miles. Yeah. I know, I know from experience, yeah. right? So I trained on that track and I ran it on the track and I had a massive reason why, um, which is enabling to do it. When I said to people, I'm going to run 26.2 miles on a 400 metre running track, and I feel, don't know how good you are at maths listening to this, that's 105 and a half laps round and round. When I told people I was going to do that, what do you think most people said? Yeah, you're nuts. Nuts, and also what sounds else? Sounds boring. Yes. Yeah, boring. So the you're going to learn pie. Boring. <laughs> so the, the number one thing I got as feedback was, it's going to be boring. Hmm. Now, if you wonder where your beliefs come from, they come from other people. Rhetorical question, if I bought into the belief it was going to be boring, what was it going to be? Boring. So I decided it wouldn't be boring. Brilliant. Right. Also, what's, there's another thing in marathon running called the wall. Have you heard of that? Yeah. yeah. Right? So when I run marathons, I thought, well, is that a useful belief? So a good question to ask yourself is, is this belief I have around presenting, life, running marathons, whatever it is, right? Is it helpful or hindering? Hmm. So having the belief as a thing called the wall, is that helpful or hindering if you're running a marathon, whether that's on your Todd or whatever? Hindering. Hindering, right? 
And I noticed that lots of people at the wall, but I've noticed that people um, uh, like Mo Farador, so they must be doing something different. So <laughs> I decided to have the belief there isn't such a thing as the wall if you have the right training programme, all the rest of it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a, so that's just a useful example of, so I think, but back to props, right? So uh, as well as running the marathon and the book coming out, I also was going to perform a one-man show at the Edinburgh Fringe, have you had the Edinburgh Fringe? Yeah. So if you're not familiar with that, Edinburgh's taken over all the way through August, 3,000 shows. The year before, in 2019, uh, we'd done a recce, we'd managed to find a venue, you know, just by hook or by crook, tiny little upstairs room of a pub and then Covid happened and Edinburgh it's not happening so I thought okay I'll do it on zoom from my spare bedroom <laughs> 30 shows 30 consecutive nights 30 totally different shows wow. so changed every night changed every night right the irony was I got a bigger audience I had more stage area at home than I would in Edinburgh right? yeah yeah but back to props, right? Number one decision I made, what I noticed during, so people listening to this probably still doing a lot of their presentations on either Zoom or Teams or yep. whatever yeah. platform you use, right? And what I noticed during uh, COVID and even now is people actually got worse at presenting, not better, because they got lazy. Because yep. they went, well, I don't need to remember this because I'll just go to screen share. You know, I'll just go into screen share now, right? Uh, and I can have all my notes here. The first thing I did when it happened, the first, very first thing I did, when it's like we're stuck at home now and I'm gonna have to do all my work, because obviously mm. the professional speaking ended, no events, right? The workshops weren't happening, right? So nobody's doing no, right? But I thought I've got to do the show. Yeah. I got a, a stand-up desk from Amazon for 99 quid. So I do all my key presentations standing up. Brilliant. Right, because you back to, you've got to be in the right state. Yeah. You're in a totally different state when you're standing up than when you're sitting down. At the very least, you stand out because you, st you stood up. Mm. The next thing I got was a flip chart on wheels. So I could wheel it in and use the flip chart and not go to screen share, because I want to be different to everybody else. Because mm. the challenge with slides <clears throat> is, and screen shares, you look like everybody else, because it's corporate and it looks too neat and nice. Yep. Flip charts, right? The other thing I got was, you know those little whiteboards that you get for doing your notes for shopping lists that you mm -hmm. can wipe? Just got five of them. So I can write some of that and hold it up to camera. <laughs> and I got loads of props, right? I'd had a rubber chicken forever. Because <laughs> they're funny, aren't they? They're funny, John, aren't they? Rubber chickens. I wish I'd have brought it, really. Um, I left my last rubber chicken in Barcelona with one of our clients, Vistaprint, right? And I love this rubber chicken because I collect props. So I think a prop is a, a fantastic... Without a prop, you're a flop, is what I would say, right? <laughs> I think a killer prop... So by a prop, it's a thing or an object, right? So let's just take a rubber chicken as an example. So I'd seen this rubber chicken. It's a dog's toy originally, right? I took the squeaky thing out because it was annoying. And I thought, that'll come in handy one day. And I carted it around everywhere, right? I thought, I'll use it in a presentation sometime. I don't know when. Just collect them, right? Just collect props, right? And, uh, and I had one. And then COVID started. And when I started doing the show, I got sick of people talking about COVID. We don't talk about it now, do we, really? No, but no. do you remember back at the height of it, it's all that was on the news, yeah. it was all in the paper. And I'd be doing these shows and people would cover it and I thought, I'm sick of this. So I said, we need to rename it. So we started calling it the Chicken of Doom. <laughs> and anytime anybody mentioned cover, I'd just hold up the rubber chicken and it changed people's states, right? So I've seen people use props in loads of brilliant, brilliant ways. I mean, you, number one thing as a presenter or communicator is you've got to get people's attention. That's the number one thing, whether it's on a podcast or anything else, right? So you can do it with a quote, yep. for example. 
So I think we're saying in my book that everything starts with a quote, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. We're just talking about Oscar Wilde quote. Yeah. Go on, I'll let you give us it. So let's go, uh, well, uh, be yourself because everybody else is taken, right? Fantastic. Um, yeah. And I think that's back to this thing about going, we need to work on being a person, not a presenter because we're all unique and that's what people want to see at the front of the room, right? Mm. So just by matter of reprise there, if you don't believe in failure, that allows you to be yourself because you can just got a chance to learn, right? Uh, if you don't believe you have to be perfect, you just need to play jazz, that allows you to be yourself. If you've got some memory tools and a strong structure, right? There's loads of different structures. I might have time to share some of my favourites, right? I mean, it's mm. coming up to Christmas that we're recording this, so I might share with you my Christmas carol structure, if you want. Okay, but yeah. More of that in a minute, right? But let's just talk about whatever structure you follow, and think of it like a roadmap, right? So what's great about having a strong structure is as the presenter, you know where you are on the roadmap. I'm just at the beginning of the route. I'm at the, this turning, I'm at this turning, there's my end. But I can go off over there for a bit, can't I? I can be mm. a little bit. But sometimes you can share your structure with the audience and they can follow along too. So it, it works on both sides, right? But whatever structure you follow, number one thing is get them in the room. Loads of ways you can do that. So you can do it with a quote. You might start with an Oscar Wilde quote. Or you can do it with a prop. And the prop can create curiosity before people even open their mouth. Mm. Tony Denun I'll give you an example of that, right? So Tony Denunzio was chief executive of Asda, uh, who we were working with. He left Asda and he went to Maxedo, which is a big retailer in Holland. And he said, we come and be the guest speaker at my first conference. And it's really exciting, Steve. It's a really good setup. We've got like a, a, a catwalk. Do you know what a catwalk is, John? I, I do, You've probably yes. been on yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 You know, the so I said, so it's like great. So it's like theatre <clears> around. And he said, I've said to all the presenters, which is the, the main board of directors, you can't use any slides. And I wanted to use a prop. Ideally, maybe something we sell in the business as a yeah. metaphor or a thing. And I went, how are they getting on with that, Tony? Because it's a bit unfair because they've not been on our workshop, <laughs> right? And he had, you know, he said, well, the Dutch financial director is pulling his hair out. He's going, this is ridiculous. <laughs> because if you've been to these conferences, normally the financial director's job is to do the, the numbers, isn't yeah, yeah. And he's going, well, I'm meant to do the four quarters, you know. Just, Tony, just give me four slides. And he went, no, because if I give you four slides, she'll want 10 and he'll want 12 yeah. and before I've got a load of slides. And a prop, a thing that, that we sell, or, what do you mean? It's just go think about it. So because they had to think about it differently, this Dutch financial director discovered that in this business, they actually sold one of the products they sold with these beautiful wooden artist easels, you know, like Picasso. Mm -hmm. or yeah, yeah. So he got himself four of them. They also sold these ready stretched big white plain canvases. So he got himself four of them, but they were about five foot by five foot wide, right? So imagine it's the day of the conference. I'm the guest speaker, so it's coffee break. I'm listening into the, the general conversation. There's two English guys looking at the agenda, and one says to other, obviously, who's on next? It's the Dutch financial director, right? And they both went, oh, bloody hell, because they'd seen him present before. In, and, you know, without wishing to cast aspersions, but people in finance often struggle, right? Because uh, they go, because another belief people have, they go, it's boring. Have you ever seen anybody start a presentation and going, now for the boring bit, right? <laughs> Often people in finance, right? So it's a belief. My belief is everything's wildly exciting. You can give me anything and I can make it fly. Yeah. It's not the content, it's the way in which you do it, right? Yeah, if you stick it on a load of slides. Guys, I'm back. I just wanna jump in and talk about a specific area of automation that we get involved in, which is called RPA, also known as Robotic Process Automation. 
basically what that does is it replicates human behavior. So we use software bots to replicate human behavior. So anywhere where you've got people or teams of people going onto different systems, copying, pasting data, going onto web applications or portals, downloading information, uploading information, any of that stuff tends to be rule-based. Go here, do this, do that. And instead of using your people to do that, actually you can use a bot to do that. So we can train, configure a bot to do exactly that process. It's a massive growth area, really exciting, exciting technology. Gartner talk about it as being the fastest growing enterprise technology in the market. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch, let's have a chat, see if we can help. So they're going, so imagine the curiosity, back to props, getting people in the room, you can get their attention before you even come on stage. Because they come in the room and already on stage there's these four beautiful wooden artist easels with these massive plain white canvases on, with like four spotlights on. People like checking the agenda going, mm. I thought it was the Dutch financial director, yeah. what's this? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, you know, head of finance. He comes out with a massive tin of spray paint, goes up to the first canvas, Sprays a big axe on it. Shh. Let me tell you what happened in quarter one. Shh. <laughs> the big number was shh, 37 million euro. And you know, you might be surprised, this finance director, for these three reasons, I'm going to give that a big smiley face. Nice. Then he goes to the next easel. Let me tell you about quarter two. The thing about slides is they come and go, props can stay. Because then what they did was they took those four canvases and put them at the side of the room so other speakers could refer to them. Nice. Like so it's just you know you don't mean no need you might just need that one killer product it's just one example there's loads of ways of doing it you need to be appropriate to your audience i mean in a boardroom you might use a smaller prop but at a big conference some mm. a sales conference right so sales people want to be entertained to some degree it's the end of the sales director's presentation so the two most important parts of any presentation Start and end, right? Whatever stress you. So you need to get them in the room. So you might do that with a quote. You might do that with a starting statistic. Mm. According to research by Microsoft, in the next 24 hours, <laughs> how many presentations? You might start, one of my favourite ways to start presentations with a question. Yeah. Because you want to engage the audience, right? But you need a strong finish. Anyway, back to the sales director. So loads of sales people in the room, gets to the end of the presentation, says, so here's my point. Then he leaves the stage disappears so more curiosity because people go where's he gone you know, <laughs> is he coming back comes back with the door like a real door <laughs> off its hinges it's quite a big guy and there's a sign on this door that you can read right at the back of the room which says chief buyer it says so here's my final point never forget it's our job to kick these down for other people so that's like using that. a prop at the end. So there's just loads of ways, right? Just, Steve, sorry, yeah. jumping in there. Just going back to the FD yeah. um, and his four easels. Yeah. Um, did you get an opportunity to talk to him afterwards? And, and what was his feeling? Well, he was uncomfortable because it's so outside his comfort zone and he couldn't understand <coughs> the sense of it because he didn't understand the principle. It was unfair. Afterwards, because it flew, it got great feedback. And that's the thing, it becomes a, a, a virtuous cycle, doesn't it? When you do it a bit different, it feels weird. But when you get feedback, go, I love being in your presentations. They're really creative, they're really different. More yes. importantly than any of that, yeah. people remember them. Yeah. People don't remember PowerPoint presentations, people don't remember scripts, but they do remember that prop and they do remember that wonderful story. So if we were to summarise, it's about state. You've got to be in the right state to perform. Can give you some tips on that in a minute, maybe. Structure, right? And stories, those are three key things, and, and that's what they remember. So if you tell them a killer story that's got a point to it, they'll remember that for years, yeah. you know. We, yeah. we, we love a great story. That's, you know, before we had um, PowerPoint and before we had, 
You know, people go, I don't use PowerPoint, Steve. I use Prezi. Are you familiar with Prezi? Yeah. Prezi's great, isn't it? It's Prezi, that good, good. That's yeah. just as boring as PowerPoint, but it makes you feel sick as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, scientists. You know, never mind find a cure for, for COVID. There's a, there's a guy, you can Google this for people who are detail heads. It's called Cognitive Overload Theory. So an Australian scientist said, I'm going to do some studies to see how people interact with PowerPoint presentations, right? So they didn't tell, you know, they always get students, don't they, right? Got a lot of students, didn't tell them what the experiment got some Got people to do these incredibly dull PowerPoint presentations, but the video did it all. Now, if you can't be asked to research it and Google it or whatever, the conclusion they came to was this, that people can either pay attention to you or to the slide, but they can't do both. Uh, little advertisement for our in, uh, introvert people out there. So people go, it's all right for Steve, you've been talking now for 20 minutes, right? The other guys haven't had a chance to ask a question because you're, <laughs> you're an extrovert, right? So I don't know if you class yourself as an extrovert or an introvert. Uh, bit of both. Yeah, yeah. I'm more of an extrovert in workplace, yeah, but, but I've learned how to be. Yeah, but in presenting, right? So about beliefs, right? The belief I have is that introverts make the best presenters. Why is that? Uh, so guys, a friend of mine, uh, Steve Pipe, um, my accountant, accountant, Sagaz, big thumbs up to Sagaz, brilliant accountant, if accountants, if you're looking for some great accountants, they used to be based in this building back in the day where right. we were recording this. Um, so Steve Pipe was an accountant by trade, he started a, a thing called the Added Value Network, which is for small to medium sized accountancy practices. So it's like, how do we take on the big four, you know, the Price Waterhouse, whatever. Yeah. Well, let's get that, that kind of group things, which meant he had to give presentations. And he ended up giving presentations to 2,000 accountants, right? And he was a raging uh, introvert. I knew that because he told me. He said, oh, see, I'm a raging introvert. He said, when I was, he said, I'm not showing up. He said, well, he said I'm sort of showing up. When I was 14, I became brilliant at playing bass guitar. It was like, it was awesome bass guitar player. Mm. But I would never dream of being in a band or getting on stage. Because I didn't want to be in the, in the, in the spotlight. I'm like, hang on, Steve, how did you go from like that sort of to being able to present to 2,000 people? Because I had a big enough reason why. I see. You've got to have a big enough reason why. So when I did that marathon thing, I had a massive reason why that was not to do with me, right? He had a big enough reason why that he wanted to help these accountants, right? So if you're an introvert listening to this, if you find a big enough reason why, we've spent all our time worrying about ourselves. We've said people are thinking about you, people are judging us. Great presenters go, do you know, I've got to get out of the way myself. It's not about me, it's about my audience, right? You're doing this podcast because I appreciate you must have a reason to want to do it. You must have a reason why. Yeah, we're trying to engage with people and add, give value and to, give value, to the yeah. community. And, and when you first started doing it, I bet it was crap, wasn't it? Was it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Horrendous. We were yeah. talking about automation yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and products yeah. as and soon I'm, as we moved away from product. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so you've just practised all the things I've been saying. You said, yeah. we're going to start doing this. We've never done a podcast before. Got to do it first episode. Just do what we can. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first. We do our best. We'll learn from it. Mm. And I'm optimistic that whatever episode this is going to be, 31, 32, looking at the producer. Are you what bit you want? 36, oh, wow. 36. Yeah, you want bit to see or hear them, but we've got a production crew down there, <laughs> right? Have. Is it? And I don't know if you've been here on the whole journey team down there, right? You can shout. Is it better now than it was? Miles better. Miles better, right? Yeah. yeah. So there you go, right? There you go. But you need external people helping you on that journey, don't you? Because we have him telling us it'll be better, it'll be better, and we'll build an audience, and we are building an audience. Yeah. So. You do need, you're quite right, right? And I think that's the other thing. I think the least, so one of the things we get people to do, because I mean, this is how long I've been doing this. Back in the day, we used to have to hire a VHF 
a VHS camera to film mm. people, right? <laughs> now we've got these things called mobile phones. Yeah. So one, what we get people to do on the workshop now is we go, right, you're going to have a phone buddy, you're going to record all your presentations on your phone, right? And then day two, and go, oh, I hate it. And you go, but just trust me, it's a really critical, useful piece of equipment, mm. right? You were saying that you'd done a eulogy. Yeah. And did you say you'd watched it back? Thanks for that, Steve. I was yeah. trying to keep that under. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. I, I did watch well, it. Well, I think that's useful because it's like, however, what I would say to that is be careful. So imagine it, they've, they've filmed all the presentations day one and then day two, first thing in the morning, we go, right, bit of feedback. Have you all watched your videos, right? Mm. What did you notice? First of all, anybody noticed that they looked and sounded more confident than they felt when they gave the presentation? And most people go, I did. That's worth knowing, isn't it? It is. So yeah. often, however it's feeling going on the inside, the audience aren't picking that up. And mm. unless you're stupid enough to go to them, I'm really nervous, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> they'll never know. So that's worth knowing. If you can get control of the internal confidence as well, great. There's loads of ways you can do that. But then also, did you notice any weird thing you did that was annoying? You go, oh, yeah, I did this strange thing with my eyebrow. I did this weird thing. I kept doing this. And then you say to everybody else who's there day one, did you notice that? No. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's good to be a coach yourself, but sometimes you focus on things that are noticed by the audience. So having an ex- so you're quite right. Having somebody else you trust, right? So you know, our, our company's called the Confident Club because it's a club. So uh, you might have forgotten, but I remind you: once you've done the workshop with us, that's lifetime membership. Yeah. So you can say, "Look, can I get in touch now?" Now, at the minute, it's probably you can send us a little video, but in the future, probably be able to drop a hologram into my brain while I'm asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, for now, you can go look. Can you just have a look at this video? Because I want that objective thing. Because you might be focused on things that you've noticed. You know, I need to get a haircut. I've got my. The other thing, voice, right? So most people go, right, so if you heard yourself, yeah, did you all love your voices? And most people go, no. And you probably noticed this with the podcast, right? The first time you did it, you must have gone, God, I sound really broad. Do I sound like that? Do I sound like that? Now, the reason, if you're not familiar about hearing yourself on audio or on video, it sounds weird to you, it's it's just a scientific thing, is as I'm speaking right now, my voice is being distorted by the bones in my head. So my voice sounds different to me. And then when I hear it, hear it back on audio, it seems weird and broader, right? It's really funny. A matter of people go, I hate my accent. So Arco, one of our favourite clients, big, big hands up to Arco. Brilliant, brilliant company because they, they just live their values and so few companies do, right? So a lot of people are there from Hull, right? So quite a broad accent, right? Uh, Yorkshire. But w- one of our clients is <laughs> Muller. Yogurt, yep. right? For whatever reason, quite a lot of the people work there French. Uh, so, so day two, you'll have this gorgeous French woman or gorgeous French man going, I hate my accent. <laughs> you could read phone book, pal, right? <laughs> <laughs> we did this workshop. Yeah, we did this work. We did, did this workshop for a lot of uh, lawyers, right? Who uh, were all public school boys, mm. and uh, they were going, "Oh, I sound so incredibly posh." And you go, well, do you talk like that at home? Yeah, well, that's you then. Yeah. So it's just the world where, you know what I mean? So I think that, be a person, that's part of your identity. You know, you should really cherish and, and I mean, I go to professional Yorkshire number 12, mate, right? <laughs> so via that's your personality, be a person, not a presenter, right? But, but So get familiar, use the technology we have available to us. So you don't have to have these fancy microphones we have here. Get used to listening to yourself so you get more comfortable, so you, give, you can give yourself some feedback. Yeah. But also get that external thing, but get it from people who know what they're talking about. 
you do have to force yourself to do it. I mean, I, first few podcasts, I was told to listen to it, and I refused to do it. But when you when you force yourself to do it, it's actually a lot better than you expect. No such thing as failure on your feedback. So part so, of that is the feedback loop. You've got to constantly get yeah. feedback. So feedback for yourself, but make sure you're focusing on the right things. Mm. And feedback from other people that you trust. So I'm glad you listened to him, because I'm assuming he's a podcast expert, right? He, he's the man, yeah. He's the man. So Social they, media guy. So he's the guy you should listen to, because he's not just doing this for you, he's doing it for everybody, right? Absolutely. So when I worked in advertising as a copywriter, it was a nightmare, because everybody can write, can't they? Mm. So you give you give your copy to somebody, and they think that you're giving them to, to change. You're going, I just want you to sign it off, right? Because <laughs> I don't just write for your account. I write for all these other accounts so I have this experience across the broad mm. that's why if you want to get feedback why not get it from a professional speaker because yeah. I tell you what if I turn up and I have notes and slides and I'm not very good not only do I not get invited back but I don't get paid that's very true so a question if you're listening to this is would you get paid for your last presentation not your job the presentation you mm. gave and most people go no yeah. well, we'll, do, we'll do something about it then what about nerves? You, I mean, you've answered it in a way, but what? What? Because there will be people that are really, really nervous coming mm. up to a presentation. How, how do you handle that? How do you control it? Well, it's a massive topic, isn't it? Um, so where do the nerves come from? Often they come from the beliefs you have because yeah. you have this belief either yeah. consciously or unconsciously people are judging me. So you need to change that. Get that. Yeah. Quickest way to change how you feel is to change your beliefs. The other thing is to change your physiology. Mm. So we think we have to change our mindset. Now we know from science quickest way by physiology I mean how you stand how you move how you breathe in particular there's a really good friend of mine called Leon Taylor have you heard of Leon Taylor well no this always annoys me because you think you wouldn't know you probably heard of Tom Daly though Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that oh, his yeah. part? Is that his? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I definitely don't know. Do you want to have a third go at it? Right? No. No. <coughs> well, when Tom Daly won his gold medal, if anybody saw that in the Olympics, commentator. Yeah, there was a guy going, oh, "Yes, yes, know. yes." That was Leon Taylor. Leon Taylor won the silver medal in the Athens Olympics in the synchronized dive. Right. I coached Leon in the early days when he was still diving in his speaking. And then, then when he uh, finished speaking, he took up running because he wasn't allowed to run when he when he when he was diving because of injuries and stuff. So, and he took up running because he hates running. That's his attitude, mental toughness, and all that. So then he became my unofficial running coach. So he's going for this training plan, right? So Leon's idea of fun is to run an ultra marathon up Mont Blanc, the mountain, oh. right? And he tells his story about it. So he's, he said, "I'm about." And he said, the stress was you have to get to these checkpoints at certain times or else you're out of the race. And he said, within 20 minutes, I realised I had the wrong shoes on. Right? So he said, what, and, and in, 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 he said, I noticed my state changed. Do you know, mm. I felt really downed. He said, so I stopped. This is halfway up a mountain, right? <laughs> and there was a bush, and I just broke a little twig off it and put it in my mouth and ran with the twig in my mouth for the next Brilliant. hour or so. Why do you think he did that? Well, it was a distraction technique. Yeah, and what, what did it also make him do? Smile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Because we know physiology, so the quickest way to change how you feel is change your physiology. Right. So, um, we anybody listening you might know if you're down, if you're feeling down, it's called feeling down because, you know, acute depression could up in a ball. Mm. Uh, we've just had, have you noticed we've just had a World Cup? Unfortunately, yeah, let's yes. not talk about that. But, uh, or maybe we should, um, when a team's losing, what do the commentators often say? Their heads have gone down. Right. Because it shows up in your body first. So if you, how you feel shows up in your body first, then the quickest way to change it is to change what's going on in your body. Mm. So stand tall. If you stand tall, stand symmetrical. 
One of my favourite TED Talks, apart from Sir Ken Robinson, is by somebody called Amy Cuddy. C-U-D-D-Y, yeah. so he talks about standing Superman. like Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. Wonder yeah. Woman, or you could think Spock, right? So that's a symmetrical thing. Or if you play golf, think triangle, right? So confident people stand that way. Not only does it say to the audience this person is confident, but that's how you start to feel confident. But quickest way is next, be- next time before you're going for that important jo- job interview, or before you turn the camera on Zoom, or before you stand up and give that presentation, just check your state, stand tall, put, put, just put a big stupid smile on your face, yeah. right? Because your body can't tell the difference, fake it till you make it. However, don't do it halfway through interview because that just looks weird. If you go, oh, I need to put a smile on my face. So quickest way, my top tip would be notice your state. Uh, if we if Brits are listening to this, it's, we tend to think I have to change my mindset. No, change your physiology first. Brilliant. <clears throat> then the second thing you change is is the next thing is what's going on between your ears. Which is, which is the self-talk. and It's a couple of things. So again, a lot of things I learned from Leon Taylor. So yep. the self-talk. So, again, people listening to this, we all probably know what self-talk is, self-dialogue. <clears throat> so, John, do you talk to yourself? Yes. Yeah. How often do you think you talk to yourself? Uh, yeah, often, I don't know, every, well, every minute, probably. Every 17 seconds, I reckon, yeah. right? <clears throat> Neil, of those thousands of things you say to yourself every day, my friend, how many put you in a helpful state and how many put you in a hindrance state? Of those thousands of things you say, how many are like really useful and how many are rubbish, right? Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, you can imagine if you talked out loud to your family and friends, <laughs> how you regularly talk to yourself inside your own head. Would you have any? No, probably not. So back to Leon Taylor, right? Learned a lot from him. So we know in the world of elite sport, it's all about state control, isn't it? Um, we can look at the football the other night with Harry Kane, you know, mm. he, didn't, he was clearly not in the right state yeah. to that, that penalty. I mean, Einstein's a marvellous thing. Maybe yeah. somebody, so it was all about his state, wasn't it? Because we know he can take a penalty, mm. but it got to him somehow, right? So Leon Taylor, he was a professional athlete of age, for nine or 30 years, started as a little boy, right? And first thing one of his first coaches ever said to him was, Leon, lad, do you talk to yourself? It's like about nine, right? You know, uh, yeah. Right. Mm. Now, unless you possess spinning head green vomit, you do know it's your voice, don't you? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which means you can choose to say, but we're creatures habit. And, we, and he said, so Leo, if Leo was sat here, he said, the first thing you need to notice is notice. You need to notice when you're doing it because it's just bubbling away on an unconscious level. Right? So you might be doing it now, right? I'm going to throw a challenge to you in a minute, a memory challenge. All three of you. Okay. Which you need to be a complete by the end of this podcast. <laughs> so it's probably going now, right? Probably going now. Now notice what's it saying. So that's the first thing I'll be listening to this. Notice when you're in a challenging situation, what you're saying to yourself and go, is that helpful? Is it hindering? What could I change it to? But here's a good rule of thumb. He said this his first coach says to so Leon, I want you to notice that voice, right? And here's the rule of thumb. If you find you're saying something to yourself that if like a complete stranger came up to you and said it to your face, you'd be like really offended. Well, don't say it to yourself. It's amazing, isn't it? What we're prepared Yeah, it's so true. So, mm. so what you say, Steve, but also what you see, because I need ear. So this is the whole thing about mental rehearsal. Massive when it comes to communication, uh, presenting and life. So this is so profound what I'm about to say, I'm going to say it twice. (laughs) 
human beings are the only creatures who cannot tell the difference between something they vividly imagine and reality. Human beings, possibly the old dolphin, are the only creatures who cannot tell the difference between something they vividly imagine and reality, and that's called visualisation. If I was doing that as an equation, it would be I, that's uh, imagination, mm. multiplied by V, that's how vivid you make something in your mind's eye, you could say mind's ear, equals reality. And the key bit is the multiplication in the middle. The more you do it, the more really it becomes. So elite athletes, whether it's my team leads rhinos, mm -hmm. whether it's footballers, whether it's divers, are all taught the power of visualisation. Because they know it's the cumulative effect of, if we apply this to presentations, physically rehearsing your presentation, but mentally rehearsing. Steve Redgrave, have you heard of him? Yeah. John, yeah. how many gold medals has he won? I'm going to go five. That's correct. Yeah. So that's you. five consecutive Olympics. That's pretty awesome, Two isn't decades, it? isn't it? Yeah. Mm, unbelievable. So I'm, on, I'm backstage with Steve Redgrave. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering what's in that book, it's just me sadly up to amazing people backstage and saying, <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you advice? Can I put it in my book, right? So I'm backstage with Steve Redgrave and I said, can I ask you advice, Steve? He said, what's that? I said, well, you know, you've won five gold medals. And I'm sure this, you know, I'm always saying to my delegates and to people who are teaching, the power of visualisation. I times vehicles are imagination times our video makes something equals reality. What would you say to him, Steve, if you were on the workshop? Would you like to know what I said? Yes, please. He said, uh, I tell him I spent as much, if not more time, training in my head than I ever did sign a ball. Leon Taylor won his silver medal in the synchronised dive, which Tom did, you know, that's why they dive at the same time. So it's doubly challenging because you both have to be in the right state. You know, you, it's not good you being good in your part. And he said, uh, Leon, in his case, he'd never slept the night before any major competition. So that'd be equivalent to a lot of people listening to this probably get really wound up moments before a presentation, but perhaps months before. Right? Yeah. And Leon said, never, because it was too full of nerves, you know, asking about nerves, which is what we're talking about now. Um, and he said, I, I, th I thought got to do something about it. He said, and I thought maybe the power of visualization, we'd always been taught to visualize our dives. That's just like, you know, so you imagine, because how complicated, imagine, Leon invented the most difficult dive in the world. So you've got a bit of visualize yourself delivering mm -hmm. that. He said, but we realized that we need, we could visualize more than that. Maybe that was the secret. So again, everybody listening to this will get stressed before the giving presentations. Think about not just visualizing doing a great job at the front of the room. And by the way, when you're visualizing giving a presentation, doing anything, what you're mainly visualizing is how great you're gonna feel. Because you've done the physical rehearsal, you know your way around it, you've got your roadmap. Now, you, now you're looking out through your own eyes at the audience having a great time. Or if that's too stressful, because it's gonna make you feel more nervous, right? You visualize yourself sat in the audience, watching yourself doing a good job. And you just really, and what happens is the science is the first time you visualize it, it's a bit like walking through a cornfield, you know, a virgin cornfield. Teresa, Teresa May, Teresa May, what's her name? Theresa May. That's her <laughs> uh, style. First time you walk through, it's just a faint. And the more you walk through it, you create this really, and what you're doing is you're coating the neural pathways in your brain. So you create like a fake memory of future history so that when you get up to give it the first time, it feels like you've been there a thousand times before. Yeah. So Leon said, what we decided to do with him and his diving partners, not just to visualize the actual final and the dives that we're going to perform, but the few days before, the week of competition before. So thinking, right, it's the Tuesday, vividly imagining what time I'm getting up, what flavor yogurt I'm going to have for breakfast even. He said, and, and that's the first time I've ever slept before in a major Olympic final. This is when he won his silver medal, right? Mm -hmm. 
He said, and when I got up, it was like pressing play on the DVD player. Mm. He said, we got on the bus to go to the Olympic final. He said, and you go to, you travel with the people you're diving against, so the, the Chinese, the Australian. He said, I looked around, and the only people smiling on that bus were me and my diving partner. Now, if Leon was sat here, he'd say, will you be smiling on the bus to your Olympic final? Well, only if you visualised. Yeah. However, there's a problem with that, with all what I've just said. Massive, massive problem. I'd like to guess what it is. Because if you can use it, I times vehicles are vividly imagining something over and over equals your reality. What do most people viv vividly imagine when they think about giving a presentation? Going wrong disaster. How oh, <coughs> bad it's going to be yeah, going so wrong. magnifies. So you, you get, no, you get one or other. Right? <coughs> if you're going to vividly imagine what you're forgetting what you're going to say and what you're going to do, you're going to get that. So there's a challenge because most people have been using that amazing ability for years to focus on what they don't want. So again, on the workshop, we have to give people quite a lot of aids and tools to go. You need to just notice, just like you notice the voice, is what I'm doing in my head, what I'm saying now, helpful or hindering? Is what I'm seeing and hearing helpful and injured. Am I seeing what I want or mm. am I focusing on what I don't want? And you need to just work on that, become conscious of it, change it over time. And then nerves, number one question I get asked backstage, can you imagine what it's like backstage at a big conference? Mm. Everybody's pacing around, yeah, we're yeah. still looking at the notes, I'm still there like, because <laughs> I have a different process. <clears throat> when you follow a, a marathon training programme, it's usually four months, running three times a week. You do more and more miles, more and more miles. You never run 26 miles, but you get up to maybe 20 miles. And then you do this thing called tapering. So for the last two weeks before the actual marathon, you do less and less. And in fact, in my case, because of my age, I do no running the week before. And your body's crying out. You need to go running. What great presenters do is they go, I don't want to be that person backstage still looking at my notes. Mm. If I've got a process I can follow, I need to taper. What I need to do is create a gap between my last rehearsal so that I don't look over-rehearsed. You know, that play jazz. And when I give it, and I trust the process. So back to backstage, because I follow that process, I'm all relaxed, I'm just waiting my turn. Can't wait. Mm. Everybody else is still looking at the notes. But the number one, so you need to taper, create that gap is what I would say, between when you've done the work and you don't want to be doing it just before you get up, because it throws your state out of whack. Number one question I get asked by stage is, do you ever get nervous? Question I get asked all the time. I've been doing this nearly 30 years. And I always go, I never get nervous. Mm. People look at me like I'm from Westworld or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, I sometimes have a massive adrenaline rush. I was going to ask, what state do you get in? If you don't get nervous, what state do you adrenaline, get in? Adrenaline rush. I just think labels. I think what you call things. Mm. So I think it... And you've got to find what works for you. It doesn't work for everybody. But for me, I think it's more useful to call that thing that people call nerves, adrenaline, because you want some adrenaline. Listen, the butterflies are never going to go away. Your job as a presenter is to get them flying in formation, right? <laughs> you want that adrenaline. So call it adrenaline. I want that performance rush. Just call it something different. So that might work for you, right? Mm -hmm. What you call things. You know, because we, I think in the UK, we like to, we like to indulge in low self-esteem tennis, yeah, I agree. We're pessimists, aren't we? No, it's lost self-team. Tell me, we can't wait to stand up for our limitations mm. and the yours to own, right? So I don't know if you've ever indulged in that. It's like, I'll go first. I'm serving first. <laughs> Ding. Uh, do you know, I'm really crap at giving presentations. I've got a terrible memory. My presentations are terrible. 15, love. <laughs> you, think, you think your presentations are terrible? You should see mine. 15, all. Right, here's something else I'm crap at. I'm a lousy timekeeper. 
3015 right? <laughs> and we come out with this garbage and we think we're telling people this stuff and everybody else is hearing it but who's hearing it the most it's you like, are because mm. your master is your ear right so if you want to know what your limiting beliefs are notice what just gushes out of your mouth we sit on the workshop time and time again people can't wait to tell us all the things they can't do rather than what they can do so it's all about beliefs so life's about beliefs and presenting is about beliefs so again by way of repetition no failure, just chance to learn some stuff. You don't have to be perfect. The audience don't want you to be perfect. In fact, they hate it when you're perfect. If you've ever seen, and it's used in Americans, somebody be really slick and we're perfect, we go, don't like them, hmm. don't know them. I quite like it when a mistake happens. Some of my American professional speaker friends understand that so well that they deliberately put a mistake in. So they'll just go, oh, thank God, they're a, they're a person. A human, yeah. Human. No, I, and the audience are only interested in, not did something go wrong, but are you all right about it? Because it doesn't mean you don't know what you're talking about, does it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. You can trip up or do anything. I suppose, like you say, with presenting, it's like a performance, so you can mix in a bit of comedy, you can mix in, yeah. Well, sorts. I don't think it is, that's the thing though, you see, you see, it's like, you say it's like a performance, but in a way, that's where we get wrong, because mm. we perform being a presenter. Oh, okay. And what we've learned to do is by watching somebody else, because nobody has any training in it. So you go, well, how you must do it is, they use PowerPoint, so I should use PowerPoint. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's questioned that. Nobody's ever questioned that. <clears throat> Did you have a question? Oh, no, oh, no. It, it was more just an observation in, in as often you said, you know, the, the methodologies and things like that, but often the audience don't know what you're going to say. And actually what you tend to find is you then self you know, harm sabotage. yourself. Yeah, sabotage, thank you. Um, by going, uh, mm, uh, when they're none the wiser, and actually if you just keep flowing, they'll be like, oh, right, like you said, actually, is they're, they're human. Now, I didn't pay you earlier, did I? But the, on the workshop, <laughs> we have four master beliefs. So the first one we've talked about, and in no particular order, they're all as important as you. No failure, only fascinating. Give yourself permission to be a person not a presenter, you don't have to be perfect. And the other one is, the other one is, they don't know. Yeah. Brilliant way of controlling your feel. So what happens is, what a lot of people do is they spend hours, probably too long, trying to be word perfect. They do put it all together, then it doesn't quite come out how they wanted it to do, and they're daft enough to say to audience, I meant to say this, I meant to do that. They don't know. Mm. And they'll never know. And just trust that whatever came out was probably what needed to come out, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. So it's a really important belief to have, but people find it really hard to pick up because they go, yeah, but I feel really disappointed. Because they don't know, it doesn't yeah. matter. I think it's a really important point to, to kind of end on, but yeah. you, you mentioned a memory game earlier, which I'm yeah. sort of half regretting mentioning again. But what, 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 what are we doing here, Steve? No, we're not. We're, we don't feel we'll have time to do oh, that, really. Unfortunately, okay. We might have to do that on another episode. What I would say is, I would strongly recommend that book. Yeah. What I would say, nobody would need to, anybody listening to this could remember at least 20 different things in with that five minutes training from us, right? That's possible. But people will, sat, will be sat listening and I guarantee in loud voice are going, yeah, but not me, because I've got a crap memory, right? So it's not easy to change your beliefs quickly because you're yeah. out of for your life. But just start to question is, you know, what is it that I believe that causes me to feel this way is perhaps what would be one of my favorite questions, right? Because if you think about presenting a life, people have these beliefs and it makes you feel a certain way. So that'd be the thing I would end on. Just think, what is it I believe that causes me to feel this way? And if I was to change that belief, how could I feel differently? Brilliant. I could speak to you all day, but thank yeah, you very absolutely. much for coming in. Really thank appreciate you. your time. Thanks, Steve. Cheers. Cheers.